please join me in welcoming the Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations for Canada, Minister Mark Miller. Can't say hello, bonjour. I, I and I think it's always important to start off these uh, these um, meetings with an acknowledgement that we're here on the traditional and and see the terror of the territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people, and thank them for their their welcome. And thank you for inviting me for this event for the now the second day in a row. This is um, these are great opportunities for all of us to to share ideas, uh, talk about the future, talk about the present, and talk about the past, but also to talk about um, things that perhaps are new to folks, uh, things that perhaps need to be said, and um, also acknowledge the 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 vast amount of work that remains to be done. I know Patty Haidu spoke to you today and shared uh, her keynote address, and we we share a lot of the same views and at times approach it differently, but share very much the same views about the reality that is Canada, the the, the socioeconomic gaps that exist are closing, which is a good thing, um, but are undeniable with respect to uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. Uh, there, it is a truth that needs to be spoken. Uh, the circumstances are the results of decades, centuries of colonial policies, many that predate Canada, that Canada uh, has often denied, but has indeed inherited. Um, and I think the less recognized fact that a lot of them were pur purposely developed and imposed to limit and take away inherent rights of Indigenous peoples. And this type of statement you hear from leaders, and it tends now to roll off the tongues of leaders, but what does that actually mean? And what concrete examples, when we break this down for people that don't spend the amount of time that I do, uh, continuing to learn, but also interacting with Indigenous peoples. And a lot of people just don't interact with Indigenous peoples. Um, and that is the reality of the 95% of this country. Um, it leads me to start off at a point of our history about how we opened up the lands uh, it, through various treaties, some of them more well-known as numbered treaties, in which we made a number of promises to Indigenous peoples. Promises of um, payment for opening up the lands, using limited use of lands, um, promises to give economic implements, often known uh, as agricultural implements, whether you agree with whether that should have been done, promises were made and promises were consistently broken. We talk often about economic reconciliation uh, and I think anyone that's paying any attention to the news has seen some vast settlements that have been made over the last few years and they are significant but often the color that's put on them is that they are sort of payments and even some uh, media outlets that should know better talk about giving money. Uh, and we should make no mistake that this is about Canada not having paid its its past bills that are long past due. Um, so when you look at often the shame that is intentionally or unintentionally leveled on Indigenous communities about not being quote-unquote developed or economic opportunities not being there, it's very hard um, to gloss over the fact that unpaid bills contribute to that. Unpaid promises about agricultural implements and policies that were designed to keep people from developing uh, in, with the expertise that they knew and the ability to do so. Um, trust is what prevents... It, it is the biggest impediment, I think, that this government has when we talk about how we improve our relationship for, with Indigenous peoples, how we move forward with the idea that is Canada without recognizing how we got there. A lot of the times uh, we also hear uh, about when does it end? You know, I think and you, you see some giggles around the room. When does it end? Without the acknowledgement of an understanding of where it all began, the treaties that cover a vast percentage of this country are ones that, because they were broken, prevented the economic development and prosperity of Indigenous peoples, deliberately, uh, some through ignorance as well. And today, when 
we look at the huge cost of failure and the price tag associated to it. It's important to frame it in that light because this isn't giving money. This is about uh, compensation for bills that are long past due and undertakings that have been consistently broken. Um, and often the government gets accused of spending billions and billions of dollars. But if you were to take an accounting principle and move it backwards along the years where that bill was due, I think you'd see a much more even balance sheet of what the government of Canada should have been doing. So maybe we're due to be audited uh, in the next little while uh, because um, blaming one government for making amends and looking at the debt load that that, that, uh, that implies is, a, is, is from a financial perspective, from a financial instrumental perspective, uh, a way of denying the history that is, that is Canada. I do want to talk about some key policy instruments as well as I jump to some of the policy initiatives that this government has put forward because there are things that are moving and this isn't about monumental realizations about things we probably should have known from the get-go. There's lots of stuff going on. There are uh, investments going into communities. There are schools being built, and as Patty mentioned, roads being uh, roads being constructed, uh, water plants that are very evocative to uh, to people that really feel that work should be done. Uh, in mostly non-indigenous folks that want something to be done don't know exactly what it is, uh, but water is a topic that is that is that is top of mind. Um, consistently attacking those water advisories has been. Uh, a huge undertaking of this government and something I think that is a game changer in communities where that water, it sometimes hasn't been provided for decades. But it isn't the only, um, it isn't the only thing that's happening. And the complexity in, of the needs that we see across communities is often something that often goes unrecognized in the mainstream, uh, but needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed and understood. The When we dig into the more granular needs of communities and the need simply to be on the same level playing field, you often see that the initiatives that come from Ottawa are incomplete and partial because we don't work with communities. We don't work with, with Indigenous organizations to change legislation that while it was progressive when it was put forward 20 years ago, for example, in what the instance I will talk about, um, it's lapsed. And on a competitive basis, Indigenous communities fall behind because of um, the failure to make those instrumental, incremental and instrumental changes to the legislation. One of those is, uh, is, is Bill C-45 uh, that was, it was just passed the House of Commons uh, yesterday and has been sent to the Senate for their consideration. And we know they like to take their time sometimes to consider things and that's their job. Um, but what this act does uh, and the institutions established under it, the First Nations Financial Management Board, the First Nations Nations Tax Commission and the First Nations Finance Authority provide the tools for First Nations to build their economies. And as I mentioned, this came into force in 2006. It isn't the only solution, but for a number of communities, it's been um, a game changer for the development of their communities. For example, the First Nations Finance Authority has uh, issued nine debentures that has raised over $1.6 billion in financing in the capital markets to support loans for infrastructure, for education, health, renewable energy, in close to 80 First Nations in Canada. These loans uh, are estimated to have generated over 17,000 jobs and a national economic output, importantly, of more than $3.5 billion. In Bill C-45, we introduced amendments to the Act. We co-developed these proposed amendments with all the institutions to strengthen the Act and support First Nations in taking control over their economic well-being. The key change that was put forward uh, is an amendment to establish the First Nations Infrastructure Institute, which will provide tools, capacity, best practices to First Nations, Inuit, and Métis groups, and organizations to plan and manage infrastructure assets on their land. Improving infrastructure requires that communities are first provided with the necessary skills and processes to make their visions a reality. And the Institute, the brainchild of Manny Jules, will be an important resource in helping First Nations and other Indigenous groups to achieve these goals. But I haven't addressed a key issue that has been uh, talked about a lot the last few years, and that's the elephant in the room uh, that Canada has perhaps the most of second to another country, which is land. It's important not 
to forget that the denial and dispossession of land is one of the decisions imposed by Canada that's caused the socioeconomic gap as we talk about how to address those gaps today. As I mentioned, uh, the signature of treaties, it's important, again, for us to remember that Canada's relationship with Indigenous peoples is largely built on that opening of land, but also of land theft, land fraud and dispossession in other forms. In my speech last year, I spoke about the importance of and the significance of sharing wealth and ensuring that communities have access to their land on their terms, and this is still true today. As Professor Sanderson, is a, who we spoke to last night, I don't know if he's here today, um, but he observed quite shrewdly that the land hasn't gone anywhere. It's who controls it that matters. And that's an important reflection because when we talk about land, it isn't simply about a transaction. It's often about Indigenous identity, but it's also about command and control of one of the basic tenets of nationhood, which is the ability to have some determination over your land. Um, this is something that will probably be a source of a lot of debate in the next few years, whether we look at modern ways of acknowledging the inherent right to self-determination. It's not an issue that's going away. And as, uh, as many powerful nations are, as many powerful governments are, fear is an important factor that gets fueled within the population to prevent these very important things from moving forward. And it's important to confront that fear with truth. This isn't about people going back to Europe or whatever country that they may have hailed from hundreds of years ago or even three or four. This is about how we build our relationship in the future with uh, a segment of the population that has had their rights consistently denied. And uh, as with all inequality um, that is rights-based, there's, there's an economic inequality that comes with it. And if we're, not, if we're not working to close it, we're not working for a better country. Uh, my final observation is this is all for naught if, if, if it's only uh, political leadership talking to political leadership and we're not convincing our own people. So there's a, there's a job to be done that cannot be done by me. And um, I'm, I'm glad to spend a chunk of my time speaking to you about that whenever, uh, whenever, whenever we have a chance to speak. So thank you very much. Merci. Thank you so much, Minister Miller. And now to broaden this discussion out, I'm delighted to bring Cal Salem back, a chairperson of the Squamish Nation Council, uh, as well as Karen Rastoul, who's co-founder of Bold Realities, creator of Who's.Land, and board member of the Banff Forum. Please give them both a warm welcome to our final closing panel of the day. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope we're not on the sugar slump and we're still on that sugar high from that lovely dessert. <laughs> My name is Girl of the Clear Water. I'm from Dokis First Nation with relations in Nipissing First Nation. It's a pleasure to be joining you here today. Uh, Brayden shared a few of the titles and responsibilities that I carry. Uh, I've most recently joined Crestview Strategy, and I'm so happy to say that one of my colleagues is here in the crowd. Uh, joining me this afternoon, Christine, thanks for joining. Uh, I'm new in my role, and this is exciting when colleagues show up to cheer you on. Another point to celebrate before we get started, which is very much on theme with what we're discussing here today, is we just saw, I saw it on CP24, uh, Snoop Dogg and his group, who are making a bid for the Ottawa Senators, have announced that they will have a First Nations equity component to their offer. So can we just cheer for that? Because if Snoop Dogg is getting it right, we should all be getting it right. And I hope they win the bid. Anyway, all right. Uh, and we're gonna make cheesy jokes and we expect everybody to laugh at them because we're all rallying for this last session together. All right, so we're here to discuss land back, which has been largely controversial, um, but it's it's really great to hear uh, a minister of Indigenous Affairs uh, tackle that head on and speak so um, honestly um, about that particular topic. Uh, but more importantly, the concepts of self-determination 
uh, self-governance, economic reconciliation are all vehicles that will help us to achieve what we all strive to achieve, which is um, prosperity for everyone on these lands. So we'll just jump right into it. Um, to define economic reconciliation, Kelsalem, if I can start with you, we're going to start with basics because recognizing that not everyone in the room is necessarily familiar with these concepts. Could you share some insights and then we'll go over to you, Minister? Yeah, I I try to apply a very practical definition just because I think it's, um, I, I'm very hesitant or I, maybe it's just after a number of years in, that I've been in politics, I've become very adverse to utilization of political abstractions um, because they become buzzwords and commonplace to the point where they don't really produce a lot of results. So I often try to find practical definitions that actually lead to material change uh, uh, and address material needs and conditions. So economic reconciliation for me is, I think I, I kind of alluded it to it a little bit earlier, is it's not about necessarily doing the right thing or having a moral argument for something bad happened and people need to feel bad about it and then feel a sense of guilt to being called into action over something. Like I, you can make those arguments and they might motivate some people. I just don't think they're the most effective arguments to make. So what I lean on instead is that um, First Nations in Canada inherently have value to bring to the table and that value that we are bringing to the table, which we could spend you know days talking about, is the peace that is now being recognized. And what's really being reconciled is Canada, whether it's institutions or its government or its industries, are transforming itself to actually include the value that First Nations have always had and continue to bring to the table. So. The most successful reconciliation, in my opinion, is is basically undoing the colonization by transforming Canada, because Indigenous peoples in Canada had to transform ourselves radically in order for Canada to exist. We spent the next 150 years transforming Canada and Canadian institutions. That's my definition of reconciliation, because we've had to change so much for Canada to exist. Now Canada needs to change so that Indigenous people can exist. And why do we need to exist in Canada? Because Canada would be a far more interesting and better place if Indigenous peoples, uh, lives, cultures, ideas are are celebrated and valued. And so when I think about, yeah, so. And then just add economics into that and you got my definition. So what I'm hearing is Indigenous peoples, hashtag the ultimate change agents. Yep. Love it, brilliant. Uh, Minister, over to you. Um, yeah, and I, I alluded to it, I guess, in, a bit in my in my speech, but this is about recognizing that the playing field's uneven and taking steps to rectify it and trying not to do it, like Kel Salem said, through through buzzwords that, and, and catchphrases. Those catchphrases sometimes are, are very evocative, um, but they can also be dog whistles for uh, the unwillingness to do all the other hard stuff. Um, when you talk about land back again, there is a tendency to fall victim to that simplicity. And we certainly know that when we look at the land base that is under the effective control of indigenous peoples, uh, are we talking about the very small percentage that is quote unquote reserve land or anything under 9124 of the constitution? Or do you talk about, you know, the vast majority of the country that is, um, subject to modern treaties, because if we talk about Inuit land claims that are still themselves very imperfect in their iteration, uh, and in some cases very different than what Inuit in Greenland have in terms of their home rule, uh, somewhere in there is the truth. And uh, when we talk about control and the ability to determine the future of your own, you're talking about, the, again, the very basics of nationhood. Uh, recognizing that is a first step. And also recognizing that there's a lot, there's a whole hell of a lot of unfinished business. Uh, Kelson's lands that he, and the people that he represents uh, are in some of the most lucrative land portions of Canada. 
and they are doing some incredible work that you know, probably I hope you speak about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it has come it's come at a cost, but it's also come with some really important realizations of the work that needs to do to um, to work on title, the expression of what that title is, and uh, mm-hmm. the very important work in regaining language and culture that is constantly under attack, no matter what happens. And so this is, um, it's why it makes it very difficult to talk about uh, economics in the way it's taught in any sort of classroom today in a conventional sense. And it has to be looked at in with the overlay of history and the reality of, of what where we are as a country. And these make for very difficult conversations because uh, elements of fear, um, suspicion, and ignorance get get um, wildly overplayed when it comes to the position that I have in government. The challenge that we face around the cabinet table is realizing that uh, this is not the affair of one or two ministers, but really of the entire civil service and the ministers, every every minister in cabinet, um, whether it's fisheries and oceans, public security, um, the, 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 the Department of Justice. If we're not doing that stuff right, and not engaging in the right way, we're just feeding into uh, a new form of, of weird social experiment gone wrong. That's a great great way to put it. Um, I heard elements around, you know, control and care over lands uh, and peoples, uh, which brings us to our next point that I'd like to spend a little bit of time on for uh, us to center the room around uh, self-determination, self-governance. These are terms that are getting thrown at around a lot. Um, they are distinctly different, but at the same time, they help us achieve um, very much the same end goal. Um, any thoughts, uh, Kelsalem, on on those two concepts for the room? Yeah, so um, a bit of background that I didn't explain earlier is prior to getting elected as the chairperson, I taught um, my Indigenous language uh, for a number of years in an adult immersion program, became a second language speaker. Have a bit of a background in linguistics, so words and the meaning of words um, and how they are formed and, and given value is uh, just a passion of mine generally. But you know, I think about those terms in particular and the expression that self determination in particular has had. Um, I would say for many indigenous communities around the world, uh, especially in I think a post World War One and World War Two context where you have the rise of nation states and the utilization of nation states as a um, as a tool for subjugating and, and expropriating lands and rights for indigenous people around the world. There's sort of this, you know, reaction to a lot of these concepts. And at the same time, you look at uh, indigenous thought leaders throughout our history. What they were doing is they were trying to connect ideas that were prevalent within society to ideas that were prevalent within their perhaps pre-contact or historical indigenous society and bridging those gaps so that people could understand what they're talking about. You know, sovereignty used to be the word of the day, you know, in the sort of 80s and 70s. It's been sort of replaced now, um, less of a talk about sovereignty and more about things like self-determination or even the expression of self-determination through this concept of indigenous law. What were the uh, quote-unquote legal traditions within that indigenous society? How did they co- constitute uh, their system of rules and the enforcement of those rules and the adjudication of those rules in whatever customs that they had? Um, and so self-determination operates, for me, somewhere in that space. Different nations have different ways of constituting themselves and expressing that. And at the end of the day, there's these... Um, inherent rights, meaning rights that have always existed and were never granted to us um, by any sort of external authority. Um, They are also an expression through uh, tools like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which I often like to remind people is um, defined as the minimum standards for dignity for Indigenous peoples. It's explicitly referenced within the TRC Calls to Action as the framework for reconciliation. So when people ask, well, what is reconciliation? What does it mean? It's like we have the UN declaration that is the framework. The framework is the minimum standards. 
But the other piece of it that I think also gets uh, lost in the conversations around the implementation of a tool like that is that the UN Declaration also speaks to the full enjoyment of those rights by Indigenous people. Implementation of the rights is a different framing of language than saying our goal is the full enjoyment of these rights. And so when you think about self-determination and the full enjoyment of self-determination, the ability for a nation to define itself, um, to define who its people are, which is a fundamental right of self-determination, to determine where its uh, country or homelands or territory is, the ability to form its own governing bodies and institutions, um, and to not be uh, influenced by a foreign body or I I institution. But at the end of the day, um, it, it's, it, it's I, mean, I think the minister was alluding to it a little bit, is the, 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 there's a long period of history where the Crown and Canadian civil society had a very paternalistic attitude towards Indigenous people, which is that they knew best and we didn't. And all the decisions flowed around policies, programs, um, were based off of that very paternalistic attitude. Um, recognition of self-determination is a recognition that it's actually up to us to make those decisions for ourselves. Um, recognition of our own ability is to make those decisions for ourselves. Um, and that also might include making bad decisions, you know, um, because no government in the world makes perfect decisions all the time. Um, but this attitude that we can't control our own destinies is, I think, an era is from an era of the past that needs to be put put into the past. We're now entering into a new era. And why? Because it's actually going to be better for all of us if we embrace that. It's going to be better for Canada and Canadians and Indigenous people if we embrace that. Yeah. So it's interesting. Often people, um, you know, seem to be confused over the, this concept of self-determination. Um, and to me, uh, not that long ago, um, we had here on these lands Indigenous nations living very much within, as Kelsalem put it, within uh, legal principles, systems, governance systems uh, that helped to create order and good governance here on these lands. And what we had is the imposition of an external uh, set of laws, uh, an external governance system that was here imposed. And and that wasn't that long ago. It's only been 100 and, what, 155 going on 156 years uh, this year. And when you think about it in the grand scheme of things, that's a relatively short period of time. Now, the story where I come from, I'll tell you the short version, uh, is that uh, I come from a very small but mighty community that has long been involved in trade uh, and uh, was very successful both prior to contact and in the 200 years post-contact, where they continued to exercise uh, sovereignty, where they continued to exercise self-determination. Uh, and as a result, we were very prosperous. Sure, we weren't buying BMWs, but maybe we were using the best tools to build our canoes, and maybe we were adding some bedazzle on them. Who knows? But... The point is that we were living in order, we were living in support of good government, and it is not that long ago, because the Indian Act uh, dates back to 1876, Royal Proclamation of 1763, we're looking at 150 or so years ago, and I, I know in relative terms we're all very young, um, but if you think about it, that's actually not all that long ago, and it's not entirely impossible to imagine or to understand how those systems and societies functioned. So one key takeaway that I'd like to encourage you uh, when you take the bus back to Orleans or drive yourself through traffic back to your home um, is try to give some thought as to what that world looked like prior to uh, the arrival of those European uh, systems. So on that note, uh, Indian Act and all, Minister, uh, you referenced it in your opening remarks. Um, in, within the context of UNDRIP and the principles of uh, self-determination, uh, what are your thoughts on it for the, for the room here? That was an interesting observation by Kelsey Elm about self-determination because we have this, um, I mean, it's proven that 
self-determining nations tend more often than not to have better out outcomes. But it's also about respect and understanding the, the relationship. It's about celebrating good outcomes, but also respecting the shitty ones. And I think we're all human. We make mistakes and govern, you know, there's good governance, there's bad governance. Uh, indigenous communities aren't immune to it. Uh, and when it exists, often there's some, there's some responsibility to the government of Canada, but respecting that uh, is something that I think we struggled and we, and continue to struggle with the Ottawa knows best approach when we take decisions that will touch and affect indigenous peoples. I think when we talk about UNDRIP, as Dr. Littlechild has said, notably, it's about putting people on the same starting line so that we can look at where we're heading. Uh, it's not a guarantee of the outcome, but it's finally putting Indigenous peoples on the same starting line. We're currently struggling in cabinet and government with the implementation of a declaration, which is very much aspirational in its statements. Um, some key important principles to how we govern ourselves, but how that works down into, the, in, into how we behave, how the provinces behave is very much of an unanswered question. We've got till June to come up with an implementation plan because there's a two-year statutory um, limit and the time frame to put together an action plan. Um, but no one should think this is going to be clean. It'll, it will be messy. And we need, as a government, to understand that it'll be messy. Um, again, governments like to control the narrative. They like to control, period. And letting go is really difficult. Um, and trusting is very difficult, but it also comes with that realization that it's about understanding the nuance of what a particular decision will have in a community. And we face this all throughout COVID as we uh, scramble to keep people safe and alive. And, um, hopefully this is remembered as one of the few, if only world epidemics where indigenous peoples, uh, in terms of mortality didn't fare worse than non-indigenous peoples, but only because of the work that was done in Indigenous communities with the government of Canada to make sure that there were open lines of communication, supports that were unquestioned going into communities to keep people safe according to the terms that they knew how best to take care of their people. And that was an important proof point, I think, for us that's easily forgotten within government about the importance of trust, but also trusting decision-making. We had to just trust people. And those were important proof points to center a larger argument about um, about how we do public policy. Uh, there is always a tendency for the elastic to stretch back to its regular form. And it's something that we still face internally and, and the resistance, I'll, I'll say what I said yesterday, uh, there is an economic insidious interest in maintaining the status quo in Canada. And that is something that we have to combat constantly, whether it's in an indigenous community or in uh, around the cabinet table. Um, it's something that still exists. And I think we'll be fighting that for some time. Um, but it can't, it has to be framed in what you, in what you spoke about uh, and the optics that it spoke about and trusting, trusting that we will be better off, even though we have, even though there are shitty decisions that get made on all sides of the table. Yeah. You talk about fear of change. Um, and I've seen it, you know, in my career, I've, I've dealt with, um, change initiatives, if you will. Um, and I find that people resist it until they see the benefit for themselves in the change. And then they start to be able to imagine the potential on the other side. And then subsequently they get on board and things start rolling. So um, I, I don't know that Indigenous peoples here in Canada are going to relent on our push for change, on our push for reconciliation. And hopefully um, hopefully we can continue to do that with a carrot. But every now and then, I suppose we'll have to use a stick. But uh, we're certainly on board with it, I would say. Not to generalize, but... Uh, I'd add that there's a growing sense in the non-Indigenous population that they want people to do something and more, and they want their governments to do more. I think largely on one of the largest settlements in, in, in world history, probably the second uh, close to the tobacco settlements, is the child family services uh, settlements that are, are, again, game changers for communities. But Canadians have been ahead of the government on this one in demanding that we do something. And that's something that is increasingly happening. It's been on the backs of Indigenous peoples for far too long to defend who they are and to push through things that uh, should be no-brainers. But we're seeing that increased impetus in the population and demanding that leadership respond. And I think that's it's a scary thing, but it's a very good thing. Yeah, and on that theme, if we can just dive into uh, Kelslim's uh, project, uh, a couple follow-up questions. Um, it's an interesting... 
my nation's project. Your nation. <laughs> sorry, yes. Uh, the, the project that you described this morning for the room, um, it's unprecedented. I can say here in Ontario created a stir in the sense that, you know, are they allowed to do that? Well, yes, of course, and I'll let you answer that. Uh, and then it shifted to, well, it looks like the Indigenous people are solving for Canada's housing crisis while they're moving towards self-determination and also, you know, achieving land back. And so it, you know, as folks kind of get comfortable with what it is that that yous have done out there, um, there's a lot of themes popping up, a lot of interest, but more importantly, um, I think everyone's really encouraged to see that leadership out there. Can you tell us a little bit about the nexus between those three themes? Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, there's a critical piece around, or the obvious piece, that I think, um, is part of the story, which is that we um, got land back, literally, um, 11.7 acres, and then added it to reserve uh, as a part of the court settlement with the Crown, and then utilized that to now generate uh, a significant wealth. Um and, and, and in the context, too, I mean, to the point that Minister Miller made in, in his his speech, you know, the context of the, I guess, grievances or um, challenges that historically happened. So, for example, you know, I was really um, impressed with the recent announcement with uh, the province of BC and the, and the, and the Crown federally around the uh, Blueberry First Nation and some of the Treaty 8 uh the settlement um and in particular the was it one point or 118 thousand kilometers square i, I can't square or 118 thousand acres going on um the i think it's 118,000 <laughs> acres of land returned to the first nations of crown land um, between alberta bc and the feds mostly bc um but the the piece about it that i thought was so fascinating because i actually went and did the calculation myself was that when Canada was was moving westward and then doing the treaties, there was a different formulas in which they allocated Indian reserves. And so it's the reason why Indian reserves, like say in Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, are far larger in terms of acreage than when you encounter in BC. I have reserves that are t uh, 0.5 acres for one reserve. Um, our largest reserve, I think, is 1,100. We, we, at the after all the reserve lands were confiscated, we ended up with just under 2,000 acres uh, of, of land uh, within our territory, it, um, which is 0.002%. But if um, my nation was allocated at the, the general rate that the feds had been allocating Indian reserves at the time in the rest of the country, we actually would have been allocated not 2,000 acres of land, we would have been allocated over 100,000 acres of land back in uh, 1873. So you do the math on, and I think this is the point that Minister Miller is making, is if my nation had 100,000 acres of land, not 2,000 acres of land, who we are today and what we have today would be far different. So the, the math on it is just, okay, fine, let's start from this point now and add another 100 years, because 100 years from now, we're going to be somewhere better than if we don't do those things. Um, but the, the other point that I'll make is... Um, the, the point that we're not talking about, but I think we're sort of dancing around is um, it's not just all, um, you know, motherhood and apple pie, as my, my uncle would say. There's also the fact that um, my nation took the government to court. We, we won a lower court settlement, which then created leverage for us to negotiate with the feds to get the land back plus the 92 million. So there's a whole piece around leverage and around uh, the leverage that First Nations have through a successive court decisions and the way that those have shaped or, or helped shape the definition of some of the terms. There's the leverage that nations have within our territories when it comes to issues like at the minimum duty to consult and accommodate at the higher level consent and what consent regime, regimes look like, whether it's on LNG or whether it's on um, uh, forestry or other things. So I'll, I'll give a practical example of this. Um, Within my nation, we have a referrals department that handles every uh, pr uh, proponent, whether it's uh, in, uh, private industry or, or a crown corp or government wants to do something in the territory, they are required to do, they have a duty to consult and accommodate a Squamish nation. We then have to evaluate 
that proposal relative to the level of impact that it would have on our rights and title within the territory. So we receive um, thousands of referrals uh, a month that we have to process. We have a, a department of around 50 people that handle this on things like archaeology, natural resources, forestry, wildlife, um, etc. So that's the system we've created. But here's where it gets really interesting. If we walk into a meeting with a Crown Corporation, let's say like BC Hydro, which builds and maintains a number of assets to generate hydropower for British Columbia, um, and they have a relationship agreement with the Squamish Nation, which gives them preferential access to timely responses on referrals, um, immediate uh, coordination to facilitate um, renovation or upgrades or, or expansion of their power lines or a, a small dam or whatever. The question for them is how much is our consent worth to you? Because we receive thousands of referrals a day and we will decide if we're going to put your referrals at the top of the list or at the bottom of the list. And you either get a response from us in three days or you get a response from us in six months. So how, how much is it going to cost you and your project and your bottom line for all the things that happen, have to happen through Squamish territory if we are pushing you to the bottom of the list of responses and we're going to prioritize other relationships who are willing to meet us and support us at a higher threshold. So the question becomes, again, how much is our consent worth? Because it'll have a cost. And so at the end of the day, there is a cost to either unresolving these things or, not, or, or, or leaving them as status quo and we don't know what that full cost is, but there is a cost. And that's where there's a big piece around leverage. And we can't forget that we've gotten to this point because Indigenous peoples have had to struggle and fight to get us to this point. And that it's been an ongoing battle for generations. We're now just seeing the success of that struggle um, that was started by our ancestors before us. I'm hearing the power of the nation to nation relationship in a lot of ways, uh, which includes industry, um, which brings us to another theme for the last minute and 55 seconds of our <laughs> talk as we watch the clock count down. Um, any any thoughts on on the power of relationships, Minister? I, I think they're everything. I, first of all, the, the power dynamic means that if we're equals, means we're going to get sued and we're going to lose sometimes and and we've i'm not going to comment on on, on lawsuits because we've spent we, we spent a good part of our relationship preventing indigenous peoples from actually going to court as a as a, as a procedural bar so being in court is not something that's desirable paddleable or all that fun it means that the minister of justice and i are often reviewing court submissions to see what best foot forward we put and perhaps that we shouldn't have been there in the first place it is a shame that indigenous communities have to sue themselves into budget cycles or recognition of title land and or, or any other um, or any other important right, um, but it is about a relationship. And as I when I speak to small, big, even some of the top CEOs in the country about this, assuming they want to speak to me, um, I do tell them that it's not my job to get their projects built, but it is my job to to, to work with them uh, and talk to them about the indigenous communities that that have a clear path, guaranteed by courts, but also guaranteed by an evolving body of law. Uh, that uh, will give companies a predictable way of engaging with communities and uh, unlocking some prosperity for communities that have often been shut out. Uh, I also have said at times when I'm feeling a little punchy that they should fire their lawyers if they think they can bypass Indigenous communities on a project that, uh, that, that touches and concerns their lands or their rights for consent uh, because there is a clear path in this country about how to th get things done um, and it is becoming increasingly clear even though we trip over ourselves sometimes um, and mess up. So... That is something that I think is ever increasingly becoming the standard and something that um, does require a level of sophistication where uh, companies or governments can't, can't railroad folks anymore. Uh, and it is the best way of doing business. It's where the courts are going and it's where, where industry increasingly is going as well, sometimes even ahead of government. So it's uh, even, even though it sometimes is a little, creates a little bit of apprehension, there is... Um, there is a really, really bright light in this country for, for, for some really important projects. And I know we have that insidious tendency of talking about medium and small indigenous business, uh, but there's a lot of really, really indigenous big business, whether it's Clearwater Deal, whether it's, uh, whether it's um, Cedar LNG that we talked about yesterday, there, there, there are some really, really big projects and they're inspiring other communities that, um, that perhaps uh, 
that perhaps less seeing opportunities for themselves around the country and don't have any connection otherwise. So a lot going on, but it's um, it makes for a bright little future. So this is uh, a great uh, way to wrap up. Uh, I do like to um, have panels express uh, some final thoughts. Um, I'm a bit of a solutions-focused person myself. Um, I, I like looking ahead, uh, setting the bar high. Most, most importantly, you know, thinking of ways that we can achieve those goals. Uh, this is one of the reasons I write for the Hub Canada, because all of their pieces have solutions within them. If you don't know about them, I'd encourage you to check them out. Um, forward-looking solutions, aspirations, Minister, what do you see ahead of us and how are we going to get there? Well, I, like I said yesterday and today, there's a lot of hope and I, I would I would fire myself if I lost hope. Uh, and it, it is, there's a lot of cool stuff going around the country. Um, there are a lot of projects underway. I don't pretend to think that reconciliation is is uh, is linear or um, or obvious at times. The, there are plenty of potential in this country to mess things up, uh, but we're on a good track. And I, you know, as I look politically over the next couple of years, I I think it's important. One of the things that bothered me last election is we had so much momentum going, and it really worried me that there was this huge capacity to roll things back. And any government, I guess, can, can, can roll things back in one way. I guess the issue is to make it as painful as possible for other governments to do that. One is inspiring people that don't, um, the 95% of the population that don't spend a chunk of the time um, thinking about Indigenous issues and making sure it's not on the backs of your peoples to educate people constantly about that relationship. But you see that, and I see it in, uh, I see it in my kids. I see it in kids from other schools that are talking about these issues and topics I never thought about when I was a when I was growing up and only had very limited interactions with indigenous peoples. But I know it seems, it seems silly to say that, but if a guy like me can learn, there's uh, people can, uh, people can learn. But to be fair minister that you grew up in a time where we didn't have internet, right? So <laughs> there were books. I mean, they just skipped over the chapters on indigenous people. So, um, and maybe people are Googling other things than, uh, than indigenous peoples, but the, the I mean, the great thing is our kids will judge us by, their, by this because they're learning and they're learning much more than we ever did. And that's really, really cool to see. So I don't want to fail them. And I think um, anyone in the leadership position today should hold themselves to that standard as well. Love it. Kelsalem, take it away. Final words. I, I, I also agree that I am very, very hopeful. Um, and I agree in the power of hope and, and the need for hope. Um, and and I can say this because I think the minister is quite humble in my, my personal opinion. Um, and I've told him this privately before, but you know, one of the interesting things that I think many people don't acknowledge and I get why, but the, the Trudeau um, government, this, this current Trudeau government has, um, if you look at the totality of dollar amounts that have gone into First Nations issues and First Nations communities, it's, I, I assume, just given the amount, the, the, the numbers, if you add up all the settlements, um, all of the investments, it's uh, the totality of it is it's the biggest amount of investment by any federal government in Canadian history into these issues. Um, and th there's a piece there, which is, I personally feel that there has been a shift in Canada um, for whatever reason within the general public, within the civil service, within political leadership, um, where people are bought in, they're, 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 they're committed to the outcome, or there's enough people now committed, maybe not everybody, but enough people to, um, to get the, the ball rolling. And, and once the ball ball's rolling, it, it won't stop, hopefully. Um, but, you know, and, and I, I, it's just the conversations that I hear um, with senior leadership within crown corporations or senior bureaucrats um, with with political leaders within our government. But the last thing I'll say is that um, one of the things that I've had the very fortunate opportunity to learn through my work being in this political role from the nation that I'm in and representing the nation I'm in is the partnerships that we've formed, um, whether it's through pro projects like Sanok um, or other partnerships that we've done with other companies, industry, et cetera, or, or with um, senior government is I learned this lesson um, kind of recently, which is that when you have a partnership, um, the way to make it the most successful is to actually 
treat your partner's interest as more important than your own. And if you can find a way to successfully do that and treat your partner's interests as more important than your own, you can have a really, really good partnership. And I think about what that means in terms of uh, the crown or government to government. What does it look like to do partnership, to partner together, to achieve something that is going to be mutually beneficial and whatever that looks like. And that's the part where I'm really excited because I think that that's the future and it's happening now and it's, it's, that's where the innovation is. Um, but I think that there's more and more people who are getting on board with that, um, idea and, and, and we can accomplish so many amazing things. You know, I just, I, I'll tell you one thing I had, we had the prime minister in my community about a month ago for an announcement on health funding for the BC region. And we did some ceremonial work and we had the prime minister stand with us in our longhouse with, um, me and my leadership and a few other representatives, um, doing a, a ceremony that we do in our culture that's common amongst the Coast Salish people and it had the prime minister stand and we walked around and handed out quarters and, 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 and shook hands with our guests as a part of the ceremonial customs. But for my elders, um, you know, they had said that, you know, they were thinking about the old leaders that they had grown up watching and listening to and following and how they felt, my elders today felt that our old people never would have believed that that would ever happen. That the time period they grew up in, they never could have conceived of the Prime Minister of Canada coming into our longhouse, being a participant with the family in a ceremony to cement uh, this historic announcement. And it was, you know, our elders thinking, I don't think our people would ever thought this was possible, that it could ever, that this would ever be the future um, in their lifetime. And so whatever we think is not possible, um, I'm going to tell you that your grandkids and great grandkids are going to say one day like, yeah, my grandparents didn't think that this was possible, but we did it. So I don't know what that is, but it's going to happen. So. Yeah. Which brings me to one final thought before we wrap minister, um, in your remarks, you said, uh, the, one of the questions you often hear is when will it end? And I think it's going to end when we learn to work together. And this is exactly what. We heard from your story this morning and this afternoon, and also what the minister shared with us this afternoon. So on that note, let's all commit to continuing to make tons of effort and trying our best to work together to build a brighter future. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Warm round of applause for these great guests. <laughs>